I'm Aaron Armstrong. I'm Pete Moran. I'm Liam Haber. And we love to watch. We love to watch somehow not the least sad talking rap movie. Thanks yourself. Uh, Good, great. We Doing just great. wrapped musical May, um, and we still have a song in our hearts. I would say. Uh, I think we always have a song in our hearts. Uh, for in your case, it's mostly uh, Dragula, uh, and that's why <laughs> I don't like your heart very much because Dragula is a bad song. <laughs> I love every, every Rob Zombie I see, from Rob A to Rob Z. <laughs> <laughs> maybe it may want to workshop that one a tiny bit before i know that's ready for prime time we'll we'll leave that one in the last month uh okay, but cool. yeah but hey liam thank you so much uh for coming on our show for the first time happy to be here um i don't know when i get my first timers club cumberbund but <laughs> it's all vests we, uh-huh. we said it was a five timers club vest because we just we bought at the surplus vest store uh and we've really just been trying to get rid of them yeah we have we have one piece of a three-piece suit uh we just have 300 pieces of them uh <laughs> this is a really that's a really deep cut liam Thank that you was so one much. of the episodes i did listen to because it was <laughs> that was one of the carry episodes oh yeah well i think at this point uh Eight percent of our episodes feature Carrie, so you have a really good shot, odds wise, of of having Carrie. We we joke that she's the executive producer. We're going to be talking a lot of sugar about Carrie today because the only reason it's a joke is so we don't have to pay her. Yes, so we don't have to pay her. Uh, <laughs> this is going to be well, a Carrie ca- referential heavy episode, I think. Uh, from what I understand about executive producers, and I'm not in the movie business, they're the ones putting in the money. So Carrie, if anything, if you're listening. You probably owe us a little bit of money. <laughs> I mean, we'll uh, try our best to return it and double your investment, but until we get that cash, I don't know how we're going to do that. <laughs> uh, um, but anyways, yes, uh, we'll be talking about Carrie because she – actually, let's get into it. So, uh, Carrie actually uh, was uh, – helped facilitate this month. She was integral to making this month happen. This is a month that we're extremely excited uh, to do so, it's it's uh, we've done a couple of these months before where we haven't picked the movies. We did it uh, way back in um, I think it was September of 2017, where we had some longtime guests come and pick movies that they wanted to talk about. We did it last October, and we'll do it again this this October with uh, uh, Ladies Fright Night, where um, some members of uh, Ladies Who Dissolve, a spinoff group of the Dissolve, Face- Dissolve Facebook group, where so many of us met. Uh, came and picked movies by um, by women directors in the horror genre that they want to talk about. This month, we're doing something similar, but different and exciting. We are doing Pride Month, where we uh, have partnered uh, through through Carrie's uh, uh, help 
in uh, talking to people in the Dissolve community who identify as LGBTQA+, to come on the show and pick uh, queer films that are important to them that they wanted to talk about. Peter and I have talked for a long time about wanting to do uh, a Pride Month in June to celebrate Pride. Uh, Peter and I are both uh, straight cis people and so we really talked hard about what was the best way to approach that uh, because even though there's a lot of movies with uh, with queer identified characters that Peter and I really love it felt like us picking the movie was potentially missing the point of the month as a whole and so we wanted to celebrate movies celebrate movies that in some cases we had never seen or or in, in this case actually heard of before this uh, but we also wanted to you know we have so many great friends in the Dissolve to identify as queer for them to be able to come on and pick movies for us to discuss. So uh, Liam is our first guest of this month, and we're very excited. Liam, why don't you introduce yourself to our audience? We've known you for, for years at this point through the Dissolve, but introduce yourself. Say a couple things about yourself that you want people to know. I think uh, three is the is the typical number, but you can you can say as many things as you want. Uh, and then and then let us know what movie you brought on and why it's important to you. Sure. Um, so my name is Liam Haber. Just for the sake of this episode in Pride Month, I'll start this by saying I'm cis and gay predominantly enough. And I think that's uh, an important way to start talking about the Pride conversation. Um, Absolutely. But yeah. uh have been with The Dissolve when it was still a movie website written by professional critics. Um, then I followed it to Facebook and then I was... The founding member of the group, the LGBTQ plus group that uh, Carrie went to to solicit people to volunteer. Uh, I've known Carrie for the years that she's been in the Dissolve and also in person. We're fellow New Yorkers. Um, oh, hey! <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know if you've listened to enough of our episodes to understand uh, that. I apologize <laughs> profusely. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I was... Uh, when she was looking for volunteers, I came up with one of my favorite uh, queer movies of the past few years, which is called Closet Monster. Which is Stephen Dunn's, I want to say, 2015 yep. effort, um, which it's a Canadian movie about a, a gay, presumably teenager in who's graduating from high school and begins to find himself after dealing with trauma in his past and with his family and after falling for a guy that he works with, begins to figure out who he is, along with the help of his hamster, voiced by Isabella Rossellini. <laughs> and that's one of the other reasons that I think I won the poll that we had to see who would actually end up being one of the guests. I've met Isabella Rossellini twice. I did not ask <laughs> her about this, but I do have Isabella Rossellini stories which I'll happily share with you. Both. Yeah, you buried yeah, the lead. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, you buried. That should be the first thing. Like, first, who cares about my name? I've met Isabella Rossellini twice. <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, no, I'd lo we'd love to hear those stories. Basically, uh, she is now, she has a farm that she does a lot of work on herself on Long Island, which is where I was born and raised okay. um, and grew up in my own closet monstery experience um, <laughs> of high school hell 
but she is a major donor at a movie theater, a privately owned movie theater in a town next to me um, called Patchog. And a few years ago, she presented and did a Q&A of Casablanca that I was very lucky enough to attend. Um, and then afterwards, I spoke to her because she kind of singled me out because she realized that I was the youngest person in that theater by a solid 30 years. <laughs> um, because how many teenagers are going to see Casablanca in their free time? <laughs> but I spoke to her after that. And then randomly one day, I was in a coffee shop in that town with um, a couple friends of mine just catching up. This was like two or three years ago now, um, in the summer after college. And I'm sitting facing the door and I just gasp and two friends of mine stare at me like, what the hell is wrong with you? Um, and I just, as like raspily as I could said, it's Isabella Rossellini. And no one gave a <laughs> shit except for me. Oh. And like I quickly, before she like could even walk in through the door, I ran down like, haven't you seen Death Becomes Her? Haven't you seen that one episode of Friends? Haven't you seen whatever? Um, don't you follow her on Instagram and look at her talking about, like, the weird stage show she does? Um, and apparently that did not cross the minds of my then probably 19 <laughs> or 20-year-old friends. Um, it's a Plaza, multi, like Plaza Cinema Arts Center or something like that in Patchogue, Long Island. I mean, if any of the listeners of this are from the Long Island area, go there. It's great. It's a nonprofit. Um, the owners of it are great. They always have like the a month after they come out, all of the movies that like people are talking about. I'm like, oh wait, no, I do want to see this. That's when I can see them. Thankfully, um, that's awesome. Yeah, but it's that was a very formative place for me to start finding weird, good movies. They used to do like surprise cinema where it was they just said like okay show up and we'll show you a movie oh that's so cool yeah i've always said that's the best context to see any movie in is just i mean like i guess the most common version is you go to a friend's house and they make you watch uh a random movie that you've never heard of and they just kind of put it on and go but like the best context to watch a movie is with zero hype zero reviews like no expectations you just kind of get to discover it for yourself which is uh which was the experience that i got from closet monster yeah i was like are you gonna transition because that's a perfect transition yeah because yeah i didn't know i never heard about this i never heard of it either i found it uh Connor Jessup, the lead actor in it, he was in that TV show American Crime, which I oh, okay. followed back in the days when you could watch a show with Felicity Huffman in it. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so I'd seen that movie. I'd seen that show, which he's amazing in. And then this movie just kind of like spontaneously dropped on Netflix with zero fanfare. Um, it barely got a theatrical release in America. And I think it won, like, the LGBTQ prize at the Toronto Film Festival, which is how it had any traction at all. But, yeah, one person, I don't even know if it was on the Dissolve or just some any movie website, mentioned, this movie exists. And I'm like, all right, might as well watch it. And then I watched it. And then I watched it again a week later. And I've, like, watched it piecemeal ever, like, a few times since and then shown it to people and tricked people into watching it by not telling them like i'm just like oh it's a cute gay romantic romantic movie and then they're just like what the hell did i just watch 
Yeah, it is one thing that struck me besides like a lot of the, you know, the the themes and the stories and stuff, which we're going to get into. I was like, I was extremely impressed with how well directed this is. Uh, you know, you you hear, you know, the only thing I knew after uh, after you had you had chosen this and, you know, before I before I actually watched it was it was an indie Canadian movie by a first time director. Like that was the extent of my research prior to watching this. You know, you you I've seen enough of those like first time director indie movies that I've that I've never heard of until someone, you know, says, hey, this is really good. You should watch this. And most of the time they are well written without being well acted or in many cases well directed or they have like one of three of those and i was truly impressed how uh well directed this is how well acted it is uh and of course how well written it is as well like this this kind of surprised me just from a cinematic uh, perspective. And then I was also disappointed when I went to go look to see, well, this is so well directed and won some prizes. Uh, I'm assuming there's, he's done another movie in the past four years. And I was kind of disappointed to learn that he hasn't. Yeah. And it like premiered at, at festivals in 2015, which probably means it was done. <laughs> he yeah. was probably done with the editing portion even before then. But um, yeah, it's uh, it was quite a, a fun discovery to just be like, Oh, one of our uh, one of our friends, our online friends, said to watch this movie, and we jumped in. And it's a it is a genre bender. Yeah, um, the first twenty minutes would imply, uh, seemingly imply a very different movie than what it gets to. But by the end, you're like, oh, I get why all these pieces were there. Um, and uh, yeah, that, that all that stuff kind of comes together in a way that you're like, this wasn't just a guy throwing in seven things that he was interested in. <laughs> <laughs> this is a guy it's a guy truly like trying to tell a unique story in a unique way mm-hmm. and and the way it the way it approaches it, it's it's its topic is like this that a coming of age story is something we've seen a million times we've seen coming of age stories about uh gay kids or in general just like lgbt identifying kids like very rarely but we've seen them in some form before i've never seen anything that approaches the topics this way yeah, it's it's not very much. Uh, there, there's not much that this has in common with the "Call Me by Your Name." Um, no, no. Which I think is to the movie's advantage, um, or "Stand by Me," or yeah, like any other any other the coming of age stories with a sort of macabre twist. It doesn't have that kind of stuff with it. Um, the clo- I mean, you can almost compare it to a Ginger Snaps, or a, like a straight up just like uh, yeah, like a women and wolves or, or, or like a raw like it's closest uh its closest uh companions are probably within the horror genre but i wouldn't quite describe this as a horror movie exactly or um the movie may is one that i've kind of uh, yeah that's a good touch point yeah uh and aesthetically i i think raw is a good call out because it really it's a much different movie than Rob, but the way it was shot and kind of this like gorgeous close-ups while also these like random horrific like body horror things are occurring reminded me a lot of Raw. Yeah, that's that's one of the things I do love about this movie is it's like, oh, by the way, the last 15 minutes are basically like twist. This is a Cronenberg ripoff. Yeah. I don't even <laughs> want to say ripoff. I want to say like a Cronenberg homage which is what makes it so much more fun yeah yeah i was thinking of like tetsuo the iron man where it's just like this this weird 
bodies morphing with uh, with uh, yeah, i mean i guess cronenberg is a good touch point too because it's just like bodies morphing with inanimate objects in a way that's like incredibly hard to look at but it's not it's still not a horror movie and i'm not saying that to be like exclusionary to the genre i'm saying it like it is it is specifically a coming of age drama with surreal sort of fairy tale touches and trying to sort it into a genre is kind of, is, is both fun and a waste of time because it's just its own thing yeah, and uh, I, I think you hit the nail. I, I want to circle back, Pete. You said that, like, at first it kind of feels like – I don't want to say Lynchian because it doesn't – it's way more Cronenbergian than Lynchian. But that kind of weirdness for weirdness sake, which is something I've said many times on this show I appreciate. But that's kind of what I thought it was doing earlier on. When it all kind of comes together and closes a loop on, like, a theme related to the vast majority of the imagery we've been seeing – I was very impressed. I was like, oh, there, there's – like it's definitely, you know, unsubtle symbolism. But A, I don't really care about subtlety. And B, it just – it comes together in such a, oh, holy shit. I get it. Like I get what he was going for. You know, we'll talk about it in more detail. But like in this truly powerful, like cathartic scene as well. So Yeah, it's it's a really intense movie. I actually ended up watching it. I can get into this more later, but I ended up watching it twice in the past 48 hours. Um, the first time I started watching it on a subway, and then I'll, I'll elaborate on this later, but something happened at the most precise time in the movie um, that caused me to stop watching it and then come back home and then drink heavily and watch it. <laughs> um, and then I ended up watching it again last night into this morning um, to take more sober notes. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, and it does. It reflects the first way I engaged with it, where it was the first time I saw it was just kind of me alone watching it sober. And then later that night, uh, me and some friends of mine from high school, because I think I, it dropped either like the summer after I graduated high school on Netflix or the summer after my freshman year of college. Um, but I just remember like telling three of my friends, only one of whom really identifies as queer, hey, this is a great movie. Um, let's all watch it together. So we got some alcohol, we sat around, I put the movie on, and then like 10 minutes in, everyone just kind of looks at me with a, what the hell are you putting us through? <laughs> Which is a look I've gotten from them many times when I say, hey, here's a great movie, let's watch it. Um, and 90% of the time it's monster trucks, but this case, it was a little <laughs> it's kind of a, a movie that I like to introduce people to. Yeah. Oh, uh, well, you successfully done that here. Um, I'll tell you what, I don't want to, I don't want to speak for you, but if you want, before we actually get into going through the plot recap and talking about like scenes and all that stuff, you know, we usually do a, a thing where we kind of talk about our first experience with with a movie, I think it may make some sense if you feel like sharing. And if not, I'll just edit all this out. We won't pretend this didn't happen. Um, where uh, if you mentioned that you wanted to share some you know, personal stories about what this movie meant to you and resonated with you, we could do that now. And then we'll circle back to, uh, if you want, uh, a lot of the, the plot elements in the movie recap and go through that after the music break. I mean, I feel like getting into the – my family's not nearly as intense as this. My parents are still together, yada, yada, yada. But there were some things in the father-son relationship that really felt every time I watch it, not like it's almost like a, hey, that's relatable mixed with at least nothing that I've ever gone through is that bad, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Um, 
But no, the the interesting thing, which it's going to kind of come up when we start talking about the movie, is so I was uh, coming home from dinner and a few drinks with a friend of mine. Uh, I'm sitting on the subway watching this. I have it like downloaded on my phone, bought from iTunes or whatever. Um, Because I was kind of planning, okay, yeah, I could at least start watching it and go through piecemeal. I've seen enough of it before. Just take my notes. Um, And right around the time that uh, the young version of Oscar, the protagonist, discovers um, a young man being raped with a metal rod by two other or three other bullies a very creepy old gentleman sat down next to me on the subway um (laughs) god yeah and then he kept talking to me he was clearly very drunk um i paused the movie put my phone back in my pocket kind of did the polite okay that's nice sliding away on the subway and then uh in a moment that again i paused at just the right time so that when i started it back up when i got home 20 minutes later felt proper um he grabbed me in a way that was not very kind one that might call groping which was not fun but it did feel like a very apt experience in watching this movie and in talking about it here that like that was kind of the way that the story played out both in the movie at that point in time and in a thank god far less graphic way that it could happen on a subway in new york city at the exact uh, in 2019 by what's was very clearly another gay man who tried to use his age and his privilege and whatever else to take advantage of a younger gentleman that he assumed would be open to that. But no, it was a very, I'm not going to use the word sobering because it then proceeded to get shit faced. Um, <laughs> Understandably. Yeah. Yeah. It put a different spin on how I watched the rest of the movie and then how I watched it again today. Yeah. Because, I mean, shit like that's happened before at bars and clubs, never on a subway, thankfully. Uh Um, It did end up kind of making me say to some female friends of mine, I could only imagine how much worse some of this fear is for you because I can go through my day Uh not worried about this. But no, I think it's a... I was contemplating whether I was going to talk about it here or not, and I'm very happy to, but it's... It was one of those things where it did color these latest experiences watching the movie, because I think that there's not just an undercurrent, but a very important idea that's kind of set into the movie about who gets the chance to take advantage when. Yeah. Um, It comes up later in the movie. It comes up in the relationship with the father and everything. When I sat down to finish watching it after having like called a friend of mine and talked on the phone for a few hours and vented in to various places and whatever else, um, it did kind of make me think, okay, I think that I have a different take on this movie now, which is namely that it's a story of how do we think of victims and mm-hmm. how does how do people kind of get past not just self-victimhood, but the ways in which they're told that they're invalid for one reason or another. Yeah. Thankfully, I had a I have a very great support system. It, I turned to the dissolve a little bit for some help, but more off more importantly, it was actual people that I could call and talk to, and even someone who like FaceTimed me once I put something on Instagram and was just like, "Hey, what happened? Do you want to report it or something like that?" 
Um, but it is really interesting how how well that one moment at that point in t- the movie, plus just in my life, it felt like it was exactly the message that the movie is kind of saying. Um, there's a line yeah. later in the movie that it goes, uh, you never had it easy and maybe you never will, which is what the mom sends, the mom sends to the says, son yeah. at one point. And hearing that last night, or the, the night that it happened, I was just like, huh, well, what do you know? Um, <laughs> it's not a positive message for the movie, but I think it's a realistic one, which is, again, as we're going to get deeper into the movie, I think that's going to be what I'll keep talking about, because I think that's what really has made it something I love to go back to and to recommend to people, because it's not all happy endings and everyone gets to yeah. hug and make up at the end. It's much more yeah. a movie about life. I'm, you know, terribly sorry that happened to you. And it, it is weird, I'm sure, to, to be watching a movie with those themes and have the themes happen to you as it's occurring in a way that it never should. Peter and I sometimes talk about on the show, like, we'll, we'll, we'll be talking about, like, Night of the Living Dead as an example. And this actually comes up far too frequently on this show. We'll be watching some movie from 30 or 40 years ago with themes about, like, uh, how racist our culture is or how uh, bigoted our culture is or how misogynistic our culture is or whatever it is, else it is. And Peter and I will say, oh, man, the themes of this resonate today. It feels like it was ripped out of today's headlight and mention what a sad state of affairs that is. One thing that we don't really follow it up with, with is because, you know, I, I recognize that, like, I'm in a place of privilege. And even though, you know, all those things uh, affect the world I live in and people I care deeply about. Uh, it doesn't necessarily affect me in the same way. Um, but I can't imagine if you're watching Night of the Living Dead, you're a person of color and going, oh, yeah, the the black guy comes out of the house and gets shot by these white guys because they just assume he must be bad because he's black. And I go, oh, my gosh, it's just like today. Like, what does it feel like for the person, the person of color watching that movie going – is that like a oh that's crazy and sad or does it have a much more of a I'm sure it has much more of a personal resonance that I can ever understand about about how depressing and sad and affecting that is in a way that you know probably gives a different perspective of the movie itself to them than it does to me and I'm sure that is somewhat of a similar situation as well that like you know having been through that that really resonates with the themes I'm sure it colors the way that uh you'll see the movie not not in a negative light or anything like that but just in a in a in a way that uh you know that well you that you may not have looked at it before mm-hmm. yeah and, and and yeah again like i'm so fucking sorry that you you went through that and it's fucking shitty and i'm really glad that you have the great support group that you you need but also like no one should ever need that kind of support group but it does help highlight something that is so important especially when talking about uh, art and talking about how we relate to it and that's that like then this is mostly speaking to like straight white cis people like just because you can operate from this safe distance from everything <laughs> And that, like, it doesn't, it it might not, uh, most movies you watch don't necessarily have a a resonance to you on a personal level. And anytime anything somewhat political comes up, you get up in arms. The primary purpose of art is expression of a personal, of a personal nature, right? And the fact that, and yes, it's like horrible that this shit exists in, in the real world, but it's so, it's so important that art reflects 
that pain and that sh- that journey through the pain. And uh, I think it's 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 good to have a reminder, right? Like that someone's favorite movie might be uh, something that's escapist or they like it for aesthetic reasons or intellectual reasons. Um, doesn't mean that that's how everyone engages with movies all the time. Like it's uh it's it's important to remember movies like this exist for a reason and they help connect and if you're open to it they can help connect people that don't really have a a way to perfectly uh experience what the the protagonists go through like i i will never know exactly what it's like to be um oscar in this movie right I can never perfectly relate to him, but the fact, but because um, I'm open to it, I can at least get a sense for what the journey is like, and and that's why I love movies like this because they can they can help us feel closer with one another. They can help us kind of pull each other closer together uh, if you're willing to do that. The lucky thing about uh, what happened is I was able to remove myself from the situation quickly and all of that, and I did have a great support system. And like obviously, if it was if it was something more traumatic, I don't know if I'd bring it up. Obviously, that's a whole other issue. But I think but it's, it's still it's still important, and I'm really I'm yeah. really happy that you felt comfortable enough to share with us. And thank you for bringing that. I, I yeah, I'm happy that I could talk about it. Um, and I wanted to bring it up because I do think that it's a shade to this movie that the film needs in some ways. Um, like I've seen this movie enough times. Uh, there's enough teen movies where there's something, one specific thing, where I'm like, oh, that's relatable. And this is not an incident that makes the movie more or less relatable, per se. Um, but what it really did is it kind of just made me say, okay, I think I can understand not just where the filmmaker, the actor was coming from, but where these themes of the movie can be found instead of just the ways that I'd been looking at it. It just not even recolored my way of looking at it, but made me really reappreciate just how much I like this movie and just why I like it. And I think that's, I was so happy in some ways that uh, I could keep watching this movie when I got back home and I could talk about it here. And I've been using it as kind of something to look at as an artistic thing of, hey, I can relate to not just this character for just this reason, but what it stands for and what the movie likes and how it's presented. And to bring it all the way back around, I'm happy I could bring it to you two because I do think that it's the kind of movie that it's not like it's aimed at any particular community the same way that I don't think like a Call Me By Your Name is exclusively aimed at gay youths in in Italy for a nice summer in the 80s or anything <laughs> like that. Um, but yeah, I think that that's one of the nice things about this movie is I don't think it's relatable at all. Like, I think it's something that everyone sees a little bit of themselves in, but obviously no one sees all of themselves in. And I think that's yeah. why it's something that's stuck with me in the few years since I saw it first, because it is something that like every time I go back and see it, I'm just, I get not just something more out of it, but I'm like, maybe I do feel more and more like Oscar. Maybe I do feel more and more like the best friend who gets left behind. Maybe I feel more and more like the mother even like there's all these or the father. It's one of those things where it's an empathy test. Like I've seen this probably half a dozen times now with these most recent two times it was a completely different viewing experience from my first, not just because of this, but because I've become a different person in the past 
four years, five years, um, which is what's made it such a more worthwhile experience. Like I've grown up with this in some ways. This this movie followed me through college. I'd recommended it so many times by now that like I rewatched it for the first time in probably about six months to see it tonight or for to for tonight. And I was like, wow, I can't even imagine the reaction I had the first time I saw it. And that's why I think it really sticks around as like, yeah, I do still really vibe with this thing. It's a fun time. Yeah, I'm so glad that you got to share it with us. If we had disliked the film, this would suck for everyone involved. Uh, and there's a risk <laughs> associated with that. And thankfully, I, I I really liked it. I know Peter really did. So, yeah, this is it's great that you brought on. And I feel like that's a perfect transition to talk about it more. Uh, do you guys want to talk more about Closet Monster? Absolutely. I don't have an alternate tagline. <laughs> Why would you even ask? How dare you? Uh, but I do have an alternate title, which I've already shared uh, with the two people listening, but not with you, the lovely audience. Uh, so my alternate title is Cool Dads, a horror film. Yeah, it's good. It's good. Good, good, bad dads. Bad. This is a bad dad. Like, would you, Peter and Liam, you can let me know. Would you say this is a bad daddy? Um, I would go so far as to say, if there is a daddy in the movie, it's not the dad. It's like the will-be stepdad who just like kind of stares down at him and he's just like, hmm, you know? Um, <laughs> which I thought was like the most relatable character at times because he's just like standing there like, I don't know what to do with my soon-to-be wife's child from a separate marriage who clearly has- Who barely lives here and barely stays here. And like clearly has some fucked up emotional issues. And he has, like, two toddlers, and he steals the girl's bike. Like, the kid's, the, his soon-to-be stepson steals his daughter's bike. Like, he stares yeah. at this kid with such resentment. And I'm like, yeah, that makes sense in this movie. And also, he's he's mostly showing standing over Oscar. Mm -hmm. So, in some ways, from Oscar's point of view, he's a big daddy. Very big daddy. But once again, not Adam Sandler. Just a general big daddy. Yes. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's it's a little bit of a trick of the eye, but, t t you know, for perspective purposes, yes, he would be considered a big daddy. Yeah. Yeah, it's like forced perspective. It's essentially a Lord of the Rings movie. A um, lot of big daddies in Lord of the Rings that were made to look like little daddies. <laughs> uh, I've, I've made the argument that there's if there's going to be a bad dad's spinoff to bad moms, it should just be Spotlight, but with a new title. Because they're all bad fathers. <laughs> um, but I think that this could take that title, too. 
I'm sure this joke has been made before, but if there was a spinoff to Bad Moms called Bad Dads, it's not a comedy. Yes. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, Bad Dads does not evoke any sort of, oh, these dads went wild, getting into mischief. It is like, call the police. <laughs> it's, it's actually, actually, it's a big problem in our society. So it's great you're uh. making what I assume must be a documentary about bad. Wait, what's that? It's a comedy? I love that scene when uh, when Seth Rogen is like goes out. He's like, "I'm just going out for cigarettes," and then he never comes home. <laughs> oh, what a Sorry, bad guys. dad! Uh, now, bad daddyo. There you might have something, which are like some cool '70s stoners. Yeah, or jazz musicians. <laughs> yeah, bad daddyos. You got a movie. Bad dads. You got a restraining order. Yeah, you got you got a tragedy. Bad Puff Daddy. I think that's bad Puff. One bad mom can can entertain a nation. One bad dad can break its heart. (laughs) Oh shit! Yeah, a bad dad's Christmas is probably a Christmas some of us went through. (laughs) Not as funny. I think the first uh, bad dad's Christmas was like Jesus's birth where the absentee father just didn't show up. <laughs> it's like, I got gifts from three strangers, dad. <laughs> like, where the fuck were you? Joseph? No. <laughs> like, it's cool he's there and trying. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you couldn't put a, you couldn't even put a roof over their heads for a night. They had yeah. to go and beg for scraps at a motel. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Jesus did have the worst dad of all because, like, he was forcing him to live a narrative to sell more books. <laughs> it was an absentee father who, like, every so often would send a postcard that was just like, hey, by the way, you could turn, like, water into wine, TTYL, and then, like, <laughs> went silent for a few years. Do you, yeah. Was was Jesus's dad kind of like um, those dads who only really turn, like, only really switch on? Uh, when they're uh, coaching their sons at football because they're convinced they're going to the NFL. Oh, then we could start talking about my dad too. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. That I mean, I I guess that was definitely my dad. Not he had no hopes for me being a sports person of any sort. Yeah, that's uh, that was my brother. Uh, but it was like uh, my my dad would be like. Oh, we have something we're both interested in. Awesome. I'm going to get really psyched about it. And then if it was something he was not interested in, it was like a assault on who he was as a person or something. It was just like, not only do I not like that, maybe you're not allowed to do that. <laughs> uh, and then sometimes the stuff that we would both like, he'd turn on me. He got me. I think I mentioned this once. Like He really got me into Star Trek. He would watch Star Trek all the time. And I ended up getting obsessed with Star Trek. And then he decided it was too much Star Trek for me. And he, like, ripped down my fucking posters and said, you're grounded from Star Trek. It was, like, very confusing. It was, like, I'm not sure what I'm supposed to like or on what level anymore. <laughs> because there's a lot of arbitrary liking rules. But, yeah, that was... That's Are you leaving out the part where you start fu- started fucking the TV? <laughs> oh, no, I fucked the TV or two. But they were cathode and very dangerous. No. <laughs> Is this what you want, Dad? <laughs> you put a ring on the antenna, so it was fine. <laughs> yeah, it was a, it was a single ear. It wasn't a bunny ear. Uh, as, anyway. a, as a child of, like, the internet, I'm like Gen Z. 
Yeah. So I'm listening to all of this like, I think I know what you're talking about, <laughs> but laughing anyway. Just want to let you, you know, know that. that that's fair. <laughs> I appreciate you reading context clues into this. But anyways, Peter, why don't you give us a little plot recap? I will. Uh, so Oscar is a young boy and has a close relationship with his father. <clears throat> And uh, his father's sort of a cool dad. And then uh, one day the mother leaves um, and they're going to do sort of a split custody thing. But um, it sounds like the son has mostly sided with the father. Oscar has mostly sided with his father. He sees his mother as this like horrible home destroyer because I believe he believes the uh, the narrative put forward by his father. So. Uh, Oscar is at school one day and, uh, right as some kids are sort of teasing him for saying he's gay because of the way he looks at his nails, he witnesses a horrifying hate crime of, uh, a young boy being presumably gay, but maybe not being, uh, horribly, horribly murdered with a piece of bar, um, up his ass, right? Up his rectum. Mm-hmm. Like that that's that's and, and then it's And then shoved impaled in his stomach. Yeah, so it comes all the way through. Like like it's very specific, very disgusting, like an, a horrible crime that begins the movie. And then it, this this moment sort of like a seed plants in Oscar and it sort of is associated with his his guilt about Feeling different, um, feeling gay, but not really having the words for it. Because uh, he's, he's a little boy. He doesn't know have like a context for this yet. He just knows that he's a little different um, and sometimes people see it. His dad is homophobic and makes homophobic comments about his hair. And his dad tries to toughen him up by getting him into woodworking and shit. Like yada yada. So we jump forward. Can I circle back to one thing you skipped yeah. over? Yeah. Um, yeah. So when his parents are splitting up the way that they tell him is first they give him a hamster named buffy oh yes we voiced can't forget about by buffy. the great and powerful isabella rossellini um also not knowing anything about this movie and then isabella rossellini starts talking out of a hamster i was like what the fuck <laughs> yeah i thought that's i'm glad that you didn't know that going in that was like the only thing i did know about the movie when i first watched it um, it's quite a pitch though yeah I did, yeah, I didn't know either. And the first line, I forget exactly what she says, but it was like enough for me to go, wait, who's talking in this room? And then, like, it cut to the hamster saying, just like repeat it or to say something again. I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> well, that's what we're doing. I'm on board so far. No questions yet. Yeah, but when, like, the hamster is taken to school with him when he sees that horrific event, which he ends up like, yeah. In a weird way, kind of stopping before it gets worse. Like, there's... Yeah. Uh, he steps on a branch, which causes the attackers to run away. And also what ends up happening is, like, when he gets home and when his dad, like, starts saying these homophobic things, on the TV, which I only, like, really picked up on this time watching it, is people talking about that hate crime and how the kid that was being raped with the metal rod was paralyzed from the waist down. Yeah. Yeah. Which, that's just, and then he's like, well, the kid kind of deserved, the dad's like, well, the kid kind of deserved it for being gay. And then, like, yeah. our Oscar is just looking at his hamster like, what the fuck's going on right now? Well, and that's such an important part of, like, the self-loathing, right? Because, like, the first time he uh, kind of understands, like, true, like, his father's that clear of, like, yeah, 
this is this is what can happen if you're gay. So like his connotation for what being gay is is like horrific violence being perpetrated against you, which like immediately I imagine, you know, for kids is like those two things are now interwoven like the ho- most horrific thing a kid could witness combined with uh you know, the concept of being gay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's um it's an important thing to settle on is is that 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 sort of that sort of seed get that gets planted um and he yeah it'll come back later in in more um more sort of spiritual yeah, literally. Meta- metaphorical and i guess literal depending on how you interpret the ending literal ways so uh oscar grows up he's now like a horror kid He's really artsy. He's into photography. He has a close friend who knows that he's gay, but it's sort of unspoken. Um, it's sort of kept as like a in the background thing, um, which came across as very relatable for um, a very close friend I had from high school who was gay and or is is gay, <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, who is gay uh, and was gay at the time. He's just not your and, friend anymore. <laughs> yeah, he's not. Yeah, not really. Uh, but uh, but yeah, but we were really close for a period of time, and it was sort of it. I, he he didn't have a big uh, coming out of the closet moment with us and his other close friends. We just kind of knew, kind of we kind of just didn't talk about it very much. And then one day he had like his big like crying like out of the closet moment like that was completely separate from uh, us kind of having it unspoken before yeah uh, that was my uh i had a couple really good friends in high school that was kind of the same thing where it was like everyone knew but like they weren't talking about it yet and stuff like that and so like we kind of respected it and like didn't bring it up but it didn't like affect our friendship or anything but it was just like uh i remember once um uh, a guy I used to know in high school, Mitch, uh, who had like revealed it to a couple people. Like uh, this friend that was a girl in our group had like a big crush on him, and she went and talked to uh, one of our other mutual friends, a guy named Tyler. And Tyler was kind of like, "Look, it's just it's not going to happen, and it's not you." Like, <laughs> just, like, and that was like that was like the breath of the explanation, and everyone kind of. Got it. But I also understand, too, it's, I, mean, it's, it, I imagine it's never potentially easy coming out. Uh, especially, oh, yeah. But, like, in Bismarck, North Dakota in the late 90s, it was, like, one of those things that um, uh, I can understand why the last thing you'd want is even, like, a friend slipping up and telling the wrong person because it was such a regressive uh, community. And and so, Liam, did did this ring as true for you as it did for us, like this idea where it's like, uh, it's not that it's like, uh, it's sort of a gray area secret where like the right people kind of know, but it's not, he hasn't had the big moment where he can proudly tell people. Yeah, that, I mean, it hit super close. Um, I similarly came out my two friends of mine, my senior year of high school, um, and then like slowly came out to my family and sh- stuff. But what, uh, what I really like is she, the friend Gemma, she does know before he does. <laughs> yeah. Um, because there's the moment when, uh, the, which we're going to get to the eventual love interest Wilder, uh, gives Oscar back his shirt. Which she assumes means that he actually was hooking up with Oscar. Yeah. yeah. But we know isn't, but she just has like an, oh, 
oh reaction, um, which yeah. I really related to because that is actually um, one of the instigators of me coming out to some friends of mine back in high school. Something very similar to that, where I was, someone thought that I was uh, dating someone else. But yeah, there's kind of the, I, I might have, it might be my own personal internalized homophobia, which will very much come up throughout the rest of this episode. Not my own, but just the idea of internalized homophobia. Yeah. It was just kind of, it took me a while to figure out myself. So when I wound up coming out to my friends who'd been like setting me up with girls for a while... Um, they were quite surprised. It was I had like a, a group of very good friends. So when I came out to the first one, um, who I haven't really spoken to in years since, not because of this exclusively, but more of a conservative fella, um, he was just like, huh, that does make sense. Never would have guessed it. I'm like, okay, interesting. Um, <laughs> and then a, another friend of mine, when I told him, he's like, yeah. I half assumed, um, but the funniest thing was uh, I did have, I'm going to use this word two different ways. I did have girlfriends, meaning friends who were girls, and girlfriends, meaning romantic partners in high school, and none of them guessed it, which I really feel bad for my high school girlfriend. Uh, Chelsea, if you're listening to this, I still am very sorry for you. <laughs> you didn't deserve it. Um I don't know why you'd be listening to a movie podcast. The one time I tried to put on a movie, you said, ooh, no. Um, <laughs> which was a very clear indicator that I was in that for nothing other than images. But that being said, I still feel bad. <laughs> I mean, Chelsea, if you're one of our 200 listen- listeners uh, that we get uh, on, on an average episode, <laughs> keep listening, though, please. <laughs> <laughs> also, like, um, reach back out. You were a nice person. I feel bad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it, okay. this is just a fascinating part of the movie, right? Anyway, so um, their relationship is central to the plot, so we'll we'll get to that. Uh, so he's at he works um, at a like a hardware store, and he starts to form a lust over this uh, new this new guy. I think he's like French Canadian. He has sort of an accent. Uh, this new guy at the office, or this new guy at the hardware store, um, and. He's so at, at home, things are getting worse. His dad is starting to pick up on the signs. He's starting to resent his son for this. He thinks if he can, I think he th- thinks he can like cruelty his his son out of it. Um, he, he starts bullying his son in sort yeah. of abstract, childish ways. Like he shows up at work to embarrass him and and doing some super petty investigation to like, like. Totally inappropriate to go up to, like, his friend and be like, are you guys dating? And, like, what's going on here? And what's up with my son? Like, man, like, that that was, like, tough to watch. Yeah. And, it, like, it's the sort of stuff that if it was coming from a good place, you're like, yeah, I can see why a dad would just be like, well, what, do, what, what am I working with here? I need to I need to figure it out. But he's coming from this place of fear and 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 ignorance. So it, it comes off as very uncomfortable and very desperate. Um, and so, yeah, he moves he moves right along um, through this down this kind of uh, rabbit hole of and his guilt is getting worse because his, his, his uh, lust is making his internal feelings uh, become more tangible and more more um, embodied 
in flesh. And he's having this fantasy about this steel bar protruding from his stomach. And he's having these stomach pains when he feels excitement um, about having sex with men. And it's, and and yeah, it, that sort of uh, anger, anger and resentment for his father and sort of self-loathing dash sort of self um, realization is all kind of coming to a head. And um, he he goes to a party and he has a kiss with with uh, a guy at the party and he has and he has this insane moment where he starts coughing up screws into a sink. Mm hmm. Uh, and then he has a moment where he's uh, he finally gets the kiss that he wanted from uh, the, the the hot guy at the hardware store, and in uh, that moment, like uh, awakens something in him. It feels like pure and beautiful. And uh, at that point, I feel like his is sort of a he's passed some sort of um, mile marker, some sort of checkpoint in his growth. And that's when he starts to really like resent his father for stepping on him. So, and, uh, he has this moment of boiling over rage where you think he's going to fucking murder his dad, but instead he just kind of scares him. He decides to move in with his mom. Well, and his dad's killed the hamster. Yeah. Yes. And, and, and Buffy has been killed. Why do I keep forgetting about Buffy? Um, I think it's because I don't know where to fit Buffy into this whole thing, but, um, <laughs> Oh, I, I have my theories. I'll get to that. In yeah. Moment. I, I want to hear him. I but yeah, the uh, the dad has killed Buffy in this petty act of vengeance. He's thrown all the shit in the yard. Basically, um, the mom comes over to defend him to defend Oscar, and uh, eventually, Oscar scares the shit out of his dad. And Oscar goes to live with his mom, and they sort of start planning out um, this beautiful future that they're gonna have. And even though he was rejected from the one college he applied to, he still has options. And his mom helps him see that, like, yes, you can be, you might not have an easy path forward, but you do have a path forward. Um, and the last scene is perhaps not real. He goes and lives in this like cool modern like mini house by the sea. He's he applies or uh, he's kind of like talked into going to an artist colony by his mom. Uh, yeah. Oh. Yeah. I, I saw it as real. It's real. Oh. Okay. It's real. Okay. In parts like the, I, like I looked it up. That's a real building. Oh, okay, because it just seemed too, especially from how like humble his beginnings were, that seemed too um, insanely cool to be real. <laughs> uh, uh, well, and then he, and then during that too, he's having that like montage of like, uh, like remembering all the things in his life that kind of got him there, uh, which is a great scene. Like that kind of quick cuts of like a lot of stuff we've seen in this movie. I think a couple things we had. But yeah, so I can understand how that kind of almost gives it a sense of like some sort of culmination fantasy. Yeah, absolutely. And it, and then the movie comes full circle with the balloon moment coming back around where his his dad was um, blowing up a balloon full of dreams and then putting it into his head and letting it deflate. And Oscar has a moment where he can hear the balloon inflating and then popping and he sort of sort of his uh his future is is suddenly open to him he can he can take on his dreams he doesn't have to be stagnant and full of self-hate anymore it's a really great ending yeah it's it's there's there's so much to talk about every scene for for kind of a short movie like it's under 90 minutes it feels like there's a lot packed in to talk about uh and especially as we you know i, I want to be cognizant of time as well because i'm sure there's a lot to talk about one thing that i want to talk about uh and then we'll, i'll kind of turn it over to 
a lot of the stuff that I know uh, that you guys want to talk about is closing a loop that we had talked about with kind of the cool dad component and stuff like that. You know, at first, you kind of aren't sure. You're seeing the disillusion of a marriage from the kid's perspective, and you see a mom who's like, again, just just in this moment, just feels kind of cold, emotionless, distant. She's just saying, yep, I got to go. I can't be there. And clearly, there's something there. You don't really have a sense of what's going on yet. And then you have a dad who's like, here, I'm going to do this bedtime ritual. I'm going to put the dreams in your head and stuff like that. And so it is a great way to look at it from that perspective. And then later on kind of it doesn't over explain, but it kind of makes clear like, Oh, the, the situation from a seven year old's perspective wasn't quite accurate. Uh, I'm sure that being the quote unquote cool dad put the mom in a bad position where even if the dad had a lot of, you know, uh, if not overtly abusive, like sort of these kind of, subtly abusive and disparaging like qualities like he also was the one who was doing all this fun stuff so from a seven-year-old's perspective all you know is mom's leaving you might not have a bigger picture at that point and you probably feel abandoned and and more connection to to your dad and it is something that like you know one thing i i talked about actually in one of our dissolve groups a few years ago of like about how much having kids myself, like I had uh, talked to friends who were gay and talk, t- they talked about their coming out stories uh, or I've, I'd heard them over the years. And I did have a friend once who was like, was waited forever to tell uh, his parents. And he was like, I remember him saying, it's not that they were not okay with it. Um, they actually were, they were really supportive, but the way they used heteronormative language is like that being the ideal throughout my entire life. I realized later on, like I was subtly under the impression that they had certain expectations for me. And by letting them know I was gay, even if they seemed tolerant and like accepting of that in the, in like the macro and a bigger picture, it seemed like for me, they had a different idea of who I was. And, and so like that, has always stuck with me. And now that I have my own kids, um, I'm very careful or I try to be very careful about the language I use. And I correct people like my mom or my dad or some other people in my life, for example, if they say something around like my daughter of like, oh, uh, like one time my mom said to my daughter, like, you know, she's definitely going to need a a husband who likes to hear her talk someday because she loves to talk. And, you know, and I corrected her and I said, you know, please don't make an assumption of like that she's going to have a husband, she's going to have a wife, that she's going to, you know, get married. Like that kind of those kind of things that I think I probably didn't realize for a lot of my life. And now that I have kids, I'm very cognizant of of like not using heteronormative language to, to even subtly present some sort of expectation that I have for my kids of like what what they're going to be from a sexuality and a gender perspective. And watching this, when you see the dad kind of at every point kind of say these things that I think in some cases, like some cases are clearly like, hey, yep, that kid was gay. So you should cut your hair so you don't get, uh, you know, raped with a pole, which is like clearly like terrible and abusive. But I noted early on, there's even that point where like, He's tucking her to bed, t- tucking him into bed and saying, like, I hope you have sweet dreams surrounded by sexy ladies, which is like 
a really good example of that kind of like, oh, he's a dude and dudes like sexy ladies. And like, he doesn't see that as like kind of kind of reinforcing like uh, heteronormative gender norms and all that stuff. But like you say versions of that hundreds of times throughout your life. And I can see why my friend was like, yeah, I I just I didn't think my parents had that expect had. I thought my parents had different expectations for me. And so I didn't feel like they would be okay with it, even if in theory they should have been and ultimately were. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's one of the, like, the really – it's what makes me keep coming back to this movie. The way that it's not even – there's no coming out scene in this movie ever. Yeah. Um, like even – I keep using this as an example just because I kept thinking of it while watching the movie. Like Call Me By Your Name, for example, it's – that has a big coming out arc to it. Where even though it's never so overtly stated, the parents see what's happening. There's the moment in the car between Timothy Chalamet and the mother, and then like the Oscar-worthy scene between Chalamet and Michael Stuhlbarg, where Stuhlbarg comes out to his son. And it's not an optimistic conversation, but it's one that's way Mm -hmm. more based in like acceptance. And I think what this movie kind of does is it subverts that by... There's never a moment when... uh, Oscar says to his dad, or even to his mom, by the way, there's this guy. And I think it's kind of, that's what allows the relationship between Oscar and his dad to feel so complicated and so toxic at times, Mm -hmm. is because there is no, there's never even an attempt to have a sense of understanding between them. Like, there's, the only time that uh, the father talks about his son's sexuality in those specific terms is to either the son's best friend when he confronts her in the parking lot or to his wife or ex-wife rather the mother of his son when he says uh what our son is and there's a moment in the um scene where oscar's getting ready for the party that he ends up going to where he puts on his mother's clothing that had been still in his closet since she left however long ago like a decade ago um, that he uses a word I won't use here just for the sake of your audience, but an F word um, in reference to what his son is wearing. And I think that was like the time that I'm like, oh, this is the closest that the father will ever come with addressing to Oscar what he thinks about his son's sexuality. Um, and I think that's why like the expectations of a parent on their kid, you always want your kid to grow up to be as much like you as possible. If you like, you want, especially if it's the same gender, I've had my dad say in a positive way, I would love for you to grow up better than me, but like me Mm -hmm. and things to that extent, which I can almost understand that weighs on the mind of Oscar, but it weighs on everyone's mind. Are you going to grow up to be your father? Are you going to grow up to leave that, familial relationship behind and i think that's why the fatherness of it if there's that's the word that i that exists the daddiness yes the da- the the papa energy <laughs> um i think that's why the actor whose name's escaping me i think it's aaron abrams he's really good on hannibal yeah yeah yeah, yeah. he's so good at like just conveying this it's barely even rage it's like just sincere animosity towards his son and i think that's why the movie like sticks 
so firmly with me where it's like, this isn't just homophobia. Like if it was, that's something that could easily be named, but it's disappointment that the father has. And I think that's what's so visceral about it, where like it can be related to for many people. Um, well, and the, and the lack of and kind of the lack of communication is the important because the dad believes that he can um, modify behavior by like non-subtle subtlety. Like, I don't need to have a conversation with my son. What I'm going to do is I'm going to be a real dick to him until he stop, stops being gay. Yeah. And then he'll, he won't be gay anymore. Like, I'll let him know that, like, I think this is unacceptable by just being an asshole and breaking his stuff. And earlier on, like, you know, scaring the shit out of him if, if to get a haircut. And, like, that's how I'll shape behavior. Not not by having a conversation or expressing, here's my fears, here's what I think, here's what I'm worried about. And even that conversation would probably be filled with a bunch of uh, more general homophobia coming from mm-hmm. him. But on the same note, it is it, – at the very least, it would feel left less abusive than it does. And like abusive in a way that we wouldn't necessarily name as abusive. Like there's definitely some stuff that we would go, oh, that is like beyond just troubling or something like that. Like, you know, when he starts, you know – Calling him the other F word or implying that he's the other F word or um, or like killing his hamster or stuff like that. But like there is so much more like subtle emotional manipulation going on behind the scenes that I think this movie touches on in a way that most movies feel like they need to show in a more overt way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's a – have either of you seen the movie Pariah? No. So, no. um, Dee Reese, the woman that made, uh, Mudbound. Oh, yeah. So that's, I think, her debut feature. Um, I feel like it was probably a Sundance sort of movie. It's about a, uh, lesbian black woman. And I really like the movie, but I think maybe to the film's detriment, it's almost exclusively a story about how the family reacts to yeah. the queerness of it. Of, of their daughter. Um, and it makes like a final confrontation scene feel like you know exactly what's going to happen. Because, which is, again, it's not to the movie's detriment. It's like kind of what helps the movie along. It's such a great scene because you know, oh God, this scene's going to end up with the parent being terrible to their daughter. Um, yeah. But what's so good about it is... That it like it builds to that, whereas I think what Closet Monster does is it never makes the inherent "I don't love you, son" like vocal to this. I, this is not who I raised you to be. All of that, it never once makes it vocal to Oscar from the father's perspective. It's just all what's kind of under the surface, um, and it's what makes him such a insidious yet understandable character. The dad. Where, like, you can almost, not relate to, but you can see why he has these screwed up views. But also, if he ever, like, said directly, I don't like who you are, it would make him not just a villain, but, like, an unrelatable villain. This is just a man who's so confused that he resorts to violence to understand who his kid is. And it's really, I mean, it's, it's not a good dad. We've said this a number of times. Bad daddy. Um, but I thought that's just what makes him such a great 
villain is that he never says he never has a villain monologue to his son. No, and he never rejects his son because there's not the coming out moment that would give the opportunity to reject. And you're right, like there's a lot of uh, a lot of good movies about people coming out to their family and stuff like that. It's usually the catharsis in these movies. Like I already mentioned Love Simon, great example. Mm-hmm. Like you know, third act change. He admits it to his friends. He admit he uh, you know tells his about his lying and that this is this is why he was lying. He tells his family stuff like that. Like that's the catharsis. In this, the catharsis is uh, is different. It's him uh, literally pulling out like the pain that was implanted in him and the guilt. Uh, by his father and like you know probably other parts of society as a whole and literally like bloodily ripping it out of his body and realizing he can move on with his like the 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 catharsis is all done in this amazing symbolic scene as opposed to that kind of more verbal like here's who i really am almost like reveal moment that a lot of these movies have and that's not an insult to the other movies it is just again something i haven't seen before Mm -hmm. for sure that's what again that's what makes this movie something i keep coming back to is i've seen coming out stories i feel like everyone's seen coming out stories but that's not even close this is like pure coming of age I think, yeah, you're right. You're so right. The reason that it's so interesting as a character drama is because the dad is not reduced to just like an abusive drunk who yells at his son. Like the dad has these moments of genuine sweetness and these moments of of genuinely being interested in his son's stuff. Like he builds him that crossbow and like his when he when he's his son is home, he like makes him dinner and wants him to be around. But also that dinner might end with him throwing milk on him. Like it's a uh, uh, it's 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 so interesting in a movie. It's so interesting and subtle in a movie that is very big. Mm-hmm. Like the movie literally ends with him symbolically pulling a metal rebar out of his stomach, uh, <laughs> like it, it to symbolize you know some sort of like opening up of a wound to heal himself. Like the the movie is very big, but the fact that it. it uh, nails this the, the daddy dynamics as i like to call them is uh so makes it so the, compelling the, the double t's the double d's it nails the double d's obviously and i mean even still like the again something you i notice on a multi-rewatch where it's pulled from is his belly button and earlier yeah. in the movie his mom says like not even that much earlier a few scenes earlier she's like oh by the way you almost choked yourself to death when you were a kid or when you were born with like your umbilical cord wrapped around your throat and the fact that he's kind of pulling this thing that had been attaching him to his father out of his belly button to eventually lock up and an implicit way kind of kill his father. I'm like, Hey, wait a second. I think this is symbolism. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) and and it's just done so well. Yeah. And then he literally, literally bends the bar to lock his father in the house. And like, yeah, it is. It is not subtle symbolism. But like, again, I don't care about subtlety. And it's just I think they're they're If it's not subtle, what it definitely gets uh, prizes for is like taking this thing that you think is meaningless or adding color or adding specifics like like metal bar and then like the weird poking stuff with his stomach with the screws and like making it like 
the like the most uh, important rod in the world it's uh i can as i'm saying that i can't help but think of the simpsons joke about how the rod gets employee of the of the month uh but like yeah this rod is very important and deserves employee of the month for this movie so it's it's amazing the way that that's able to this thing that you would never think would like tie the movie together in this like emotionally resonant way the act of him pulling it out and then like locking his father in the house with it is like is so cathartic. Yeah. Yeah. It, that I have to say, uh, for a movie that does not is not really a horror movie, it does have I think it does nod at horror's uh queer past. And it does nod at uh coming of age movies uh queer past and those how those two come together. Um and the thing is the thing is that if I I've seen and I've heard from um, LGBT commentators on this stuff, and it's totally true, is that sometimes horror fans have to kind of take what they can get. So even movies that are ostensibly, even though movies that are clearly had some sort of homophobic intent, um, like The the Nightmare on Elm Street 2, uh, can be taken back by the community. Yeah. And embraced and put into a new context. Yeah. this movie, but it's so fun when you get these modern indie movies that like understand that genre stuff is not just for, you know, straight white bros. Like it's for it's it like these these, these symbolism, these images can be used by um, used by all sorts of communities. Uh, and, and that's why I fucking love the, the ending because it really does speak to I think it really does speak to power violent images can have in our mind and how we associate with violence and it's not necessarily just about a guy with a knife right it can be it can be so much more complicated and sticky than that and that the the, the just the musical choice during that last mo- that slow motion montage when oscar it looks like oscar's gonna fucking murder his dad and you're like, you're like oh i guess that's how this movie's ending um and they're playing those sort of drunken horror horns yeah um, just off key sort of like almost sound like from the, from Hereditary or The Exorcist or Insidious. Um, very classic sort of horror touch. Putting them right there just helps amplify the message of the movie at the end. Yeah, I think to kind of change from the theme of daddies to a, the theme of horror in general. Um, I really like how this movie does engage with horror tropes. Um, so this is where kind of my hamster thing comes in i think this is kind of a vampire movie go on (laughs) i'm with you yeah so there's um i think that the down to the fact that the hamster names herself buffy as in the vampire (laughs) slayer and our character when he was a young boy is wandering with a wooden stake through a graveyard and there's that scene in the like intercuts between him and his father where he stabs his father with the stake and then the father throws up red leaves and you see that he has these two fake pointy teeth in his mouth. Mm -hmm. I really do think that this is kind of pulling from not just like that. I mean, there's the Frankenstein-ness of the bolts that are coming out of him. There's the Wolfman-ness of that's the boy he's chasing in the end. Um, There's... The naked woman who you see in the bathtub out of nowhere, out of room 237. Um, there was something else out of The Shining that I thought of this time. Where it's kind of, oh, the psychoness of him 
dressing up like his mother. I mean, there's also there's also Keanu Reeves and Winona Ryder being woefully miscast, which I think <laughs> definitely points to a vampire movie. Yeah, I was really surprised that they showed up as gravestones, just like it was covered, weird, like painted yeah. in gray and just standing there. Look, a lot of surrealistic things, <laughs> and you know, I don't want to. It was it was an interesting choice, but one I respect. Yeah, um, but yeah, just kind of like taking all of these horror images that like kind of looking at it this umpteenth time i really did come up with the vampire story of he's kind of hunting these demons i mean yeah the title alone kind of implies more horror than you get with closet monster and i think that's something that's almost like what or who is the closet monster in this movie yeah yeah like is it just the kind of like idea of being in the closet for a queer person is it the fact that he locks his father up in a closet. Is it like the monsters that he's designing when he's taking all of these costumes out of his closet and dresses up to go to a horror party, a costume party, or the makeup that he makes for his friend and himself for like a job? I think that's like the fact that there's never like, I'm so glad that there's never a point where the mom just says, and that was the closet monster all along or anything like that. <laughs> yeah. Like I, I – you would have – the first time I watched it, I'm like, is there going to be like him saying to his dad, like, can you check for a monster in my closet or something like that? And then the dad does the, boo, I'm the monster in your closet. But I'm so glad it doesn't go for that. Well, and also, you know, the title uh, – again, I didn't know much about this movie going into it. It was uh, it was a rare thing where uh, based on the title and based on the one-minute synopsis – I didn't know if this movie was going to be like, is it a comedy? Mm-hmm. Is it a drama? Is it a horror movie? Like, I I honestly didn't know. And it turns out in some ways it's all three of those things. Mm-hmm. Like, there's some legitimately funny moments. There's definitely a lot of, you know, dramatic and, and stuff like that moments. And there's definitely some horror moments. Uh, it, it really does it, you know, Peter's a genre bending. And I think that's true. Like it's, it's hard to pin this movie down, but yeah, there's, there's definitely a lot of horror imagery to the point that like what he wants to do is to make up people to be these like horrific creatures. And he does a pretty good job of it. Although I do think, uh, Gemma should have probably just put the cigarette out while she was taking the pictures. I mean, <laughs> yeah, she. I would love for like the twist ending to be like surprise. She just was not pretty enough. He should have retouched <laughs> those images that ruined their friendship. He was right all along. <laughs> Your dad is too creepy. <laughs> like too much of a creepy daddy. <laughs> we don't like creepy daddies. I actually. So there was something that kind of occurred to me watching this movie. And I, I don't know the right answer, but, like, there's, there's a few points in here where, like, his kind of, like, horrific moments are paired with, like, his attraction to uh, Wilder, I believe is his name. Um, and, like, there's obviously the point in the movie that I mentioned where, like, uh, you know, his being gay was, like, associated with this horrific, violent act. But there's there was also part of me that was, like, you know, I could see that being this idea of, like – of violence and like uh being gay were merged in a way for a lot of people to the point that like you know uh the, there's something subtly that like that ends up like linking horniness and vi- and like horrific violence in a way that's that's 
like I can understand this being like I don't even know if unhealthy is the right word for it, but like and and the reason it occurred to me is like there's there's so much like in the news, you know, he's he's watching a news report. He doesn't just tell his dad about what he saw. He's watching a news report, and I think that's that's important, especially as like as a kid who like grew up and like probably one of the earlier time the first times I asked my parents what being gay meant was like hearing about like Matthew Shepard or like these other people or like these these stories like normally when something was featured on the news relating to the idea of homosexuality when I was younger and watching the evening news and that was the only time I had heard the word was like you know some sort of terrible hate crime or people trying to take away rights from people or or deny them rights that they're trying to earn and like I could see it being very easy if you are also as you grow up like having those thoughts or am I this to have a just a natural uh, thing where you're conflating that with these like these kind of violent images or violent stories that you're hearing on the news yeah it's it's such a not even from speaking from just a personal perspective um because, like, I grew up in a post-Will and Grace era. I grew up in a yeah. post-Ellen DeGeneres whatever, um, where it was kind of like, oh, here are the funny gay people who all act the same way, just fit these stereotypes and you're golden. I think that it's true that it's kind of like a the sex and violence merge together so much that, like, he feels this intense pain every time he feels... Um, emotion every time he feels arousal um up until like the he vomits up nails and nuts and bolts which kind of is his capstone of he literally just had penetrative sex for the first time in his life and his first reaction is to vomit which is itself very um it's a trope that's seen in a lot of these coming of age movies but more importantly it's one that is so upsetting because like you can almost imagine being in that situation yourself um but i think that uh the fact that like his first positive experience where he doesn't feel this pain is when he's kissing wilder for the first time in what might be like the most erotic water drinking scene ever (laughs) very much so it's also like the the like it's uh i have it specifically marked in my notes is like you know it's it's a very like sweet and also like you know a rousing scene it is like very uh it's like the sweet emotional center of a movie that has a lot of like darkness to it mm-hmm. well first of all i just like the fact that if you like make put their names together it's oscar wilder um <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty good which i'm assuming like Stephen dunn must have written that down and just like had a nice chuckle to himself um <laughs> But it was, uh, like, the the water drinking scene, like, it's intercut with water. It's intercut with some of the same images that are from the artist colony when he gets there at the end. Not, like, the literal same images, but, like, the same imagery of just, like, verine, calm, blue, water, etc. When every other time he's had any sort of erotic feelings, it's like, oh, here's intense pain that's resulting from, and, like, memories of you seeing a dead body. It's such a calmness to their sex scene that doesn't involve actual sex. Um, and literally, like, the consummation of the relationship that you've been following the entire time. It's them holding hands. Like, that's the capstone to the Oscar and Wilder relationship. It's not 
sex. It's not them kissing. It's them just kind of like holding hands in peace with each other before Wilder leaves forever. Which like the conversation of is Wilder a fuckboy is one very much worthwhile having with this movie. <laughs> um, especially at the beginning, it's especially at the beginning, it's incredibly, it's incredibly much about like lust and and it's about like very sensual sort of of images, right? It's it's not that he likes Wilder's sensitivity or something. He like he just likes the fact that Wilder is like in touch with his body and like has like a sensual quality, right? And that's like totally acceptable yeah in some ways i kind of see it as like a, a bookend or a opposite side of the spectrum because like i think you know he sees wilder making out with a with a girl at the party mm-hmm. and then he gets kind of angry and i think you know probably because he's assuming oh this person might not be gay like i thought he was but then you know later on in the scene in the in the bed they clearly you know i i think it's i think it was smart of the movie to to not necessarily clearly define uh, and and that you know sexuality as a whole doesn't need to be so rigidly defined as even as even Oscar was like perceiving it when he saw Wilder kiss a girl at a party, and it also I'm sure in some ways like it represents kind of you know from Oscar's perspective he is going through a lot of struggle in related to who he's discovering who he is as a person, and then he sees Wilder who like is not as rigidly defined as he thought people needed to be. But then also seems like perfectly comfortable in his own skin and with the way that he, you know, uh, like lives his sexuality in a way. And so I'm sure that is also like uh, there specifically to contrast kind of what the where the two are at with like accepting who they are. It's such a like I love any time a movie like, I'm even hesitant to call this, like, a gay love story. It's more just, like, a queer love story because there's no consummation of, like, a gay relationship. There's no labeling of um, Wilder in particular. It's like he's learning to love himself or accept himself over, like, Wilder is not the the magical man that's going to fix Oscar's issues. <laughs> in fact, he's, like, the opposite because the second that <laughs> – the second that uh, Oscar gets like what he thinks is his big love scene, he's out of his life already. Yeah, and it's actually weirdly enough more about the importance of good allies and good support groups, right? Um, because it, the movie kind of moves away from his. He says something really rude and kind of cruel to his his friend. What's her name again? Gemma. Gemma. He says something kind of rude and cruel to Gemma in this like moment of, of I guess, uh, just passing on cruelty. Um, and then at the end, he comes back around to like apologize and reconnect with her. And they're like even in, in an even stronger position to be friends because like he's more understanding of who he is and therefore he's harboring less bullshit. He can probably be a better friend now. Yeah. I mean, he even talks to her in that scene where – he basically says that she's not pretty enough to make it as an actress um, without, like, her photos being retouched and her, like, having that advantage of, like, being more pretty than anyone else. He's, like, talking to her the same way that um, his father was talking to the girlfriend that she that he brings home that Oscar winds up, like, seeing naked in the shower, who – it's not like a – it's just objectifying casually, but when it was the – woman that he has that that the father has the date with 
she's kind of putting up with this terrible man who's being terrible to his son right in front of her. Um, whereas she is, whereas Gemma just does not stand for it. It's kind of a, I like it, I like it as a generational message, but more importantly, I think it's a really nice show of who she is in relation to Oscar, where she will not put up with that bullshit from him. She had her crush on him that she knew would never be consummated. But more importantly, she's not going to be treated like some lesser just because she's not pretty enough or anything. It's like, a, yeah, it's a great deflection from Oscar to be like, well, you're not pretty enough. So obviously, like people won't be interested in you to her being like, no, I'm pretty enough. You just need to be less of a dick, which I think is very much a way that uh, women talk to gay men and gay men will talk to women sometimes especially from personal experience. Um, but I think in that instance in particular, it's kind of a really important scene for Oscar to realize that this is still a person with feelings. And even though yeah. like sh- he does not share her feelings and vice versa, he needs to treat her with any sort of respect because he can't be, he can't treat all women like the way that he's seen women treated in his own home uh we well i can't believe we've been talking for as long as we have this has been a great episode i'm sure i, I definitely want to turn it over to you guys if there's other moments or scenes we didn't get a chance to discuss that you want to call out before we do some final thoughts peter what about you first yeah i don't really have any final moments i i i do like the fact that the movie uh operates from oscar's perspective so it's actually very big uh and there's a lot of you know big emotions big conflict like some stuff operates almost on like just a larger symbolic level um but it's not cheesy though because i think of the 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 approach the director makes it's always like emotionally grounded the scenes where people are screaming at each other doesn't feel like a cheap melodrama it feels uh, very real and believable to me and yeah i think if i kind of go go to my final thoughts on the movie and that's that i i find that this movie kind of scratches all of the itches i need in in these sort of emotional dramas because i get the big cathartic powerful moments but i also um there's these chewy relationships where you just can't you can't quite wrap your, your your you know you can't quite wrap your hands around you can't quite figure out exactly what it is like you can make a generalization and just be like yeah it's a bad dad obviously he's a bad dad but like the specific ways that he works or the specific ways that the mom reacts to being pushed uh, away from her son or the specific ways uh, that Oscar pushes away friends of his. It's all just so subtle and interesting, but then you still get the big cathartic moments too. So yeah, it's kind of, I'm really happy Liam for you bringing this movie on and uh, thanks for, uh, thanks for doing so. Yeah, I was happy to show it off. I always like kind of getting the reactions of people who are completely unaware of what they're about to watch from this. <laughs> um, I recommend very it. true of us. Well, I love recommending it to people gay and straight or queer and straight. I guess the reactions are always similar enough in that everyone's like, "I had no clue what it was going to be from moment to moment." But I do think that it is kind of one of those movies that, like, everyone will watch and come away with saying, hmm, maybe that was a bad dad. <laughs> um, but I do think that there's something really close to the queer teenage white boy experience, which is majority of my 
friends and romantic paramours that have seen this movie, where I kind of am just like, it's almost like the listening to the shins in the garden state kind of thing, where it's like, <laughs> this will change your life. Um, but more importantly, I'm like, this is your life, just heads up. Um, yeah. But it's kind of why I've loved to kind of get every reaction to this movie that I can. I do know enough people, including myself, who watch it and say, oh, am I Oscar? I know enough people who watch it and say, oh, I've known that Wilder. I've been Gemma. Like, everyone kind of comes away from it, relating to it in enough of a way that I think there's a reason that you both enjoyed it more than just like, oh, that was a fun movie, but like, a, that was a relatable kind of movie. There's some things that it's just every teen experience, smoking your first, like having drugs, getting drunk, smoking, like all of those firsts for when you're like a kid and you're like, oh yeah, drugs are cool, let me try them before you realize like what your actual limits are. Or like just trying to get away from mom and dad and figure out your own story, a sep like separate from them, that I think really is universal in a lot of ways. But I also think that this is a movie where uh, a vampire named Buffy, voiced by Isabella Rossellini, says in a put-on-male voice, I'm having a gender jam. Um, <laughs> because in some ways she's voicing a gender queer hamster who identifies as female even with male anatomy. Like, that's just the kind of weird subtleties of this strange, strange movie. Where and it's taken straight on. Like it's not it's not there to be some cheap joke, right? Yeah. It's yeah. taken on, yeah, it's taken like as a sincere thing, which is awesome. <laughs> yeah, and like it's I mean part of that is like this is the fourth Buffy that Oscar's ever had, as Buffy points out at the end of the movie. Um but it's like this this is a like it's at times a, a best friend comedy, but like the best friend isn't a human, it's a hamster. It's that's what's so great about this. It's there's nothing like it. But if there is one thing that I look back on and I'm like, oh, yeah, that is the gay experience. It's getting your first kiss after your first gay hookup. <laughs> Where I watch that and I'm like, hmm. Like even the first time I saw it, I'm like, wait a second. Is this too relatable? Um, and I do think that's why I keep coming back to this because it is a movie that like, sure, maybe I've never threatened to kill my father with rebar that I pulled from my stomach. Maybe I've never had a talking hamster that like knew more about my life than I did. But like I did have that high school, early college experience of being like, who am I and how do I fit into this stereotype that I kind of am being forced into by coming out. And I think that's why this movie has stuck with me for so long. And again, in rewatching it recently, it's taken on a different context, but still, it's a movie that I'm going to tell people to watch no matter what their background is, no matter what their history is, because I do think it's something that's like gets to the high school experience. Everyone has those shitty friends. Everyone has the parents they just can't get enough of. This is just like not just the most heightened version of it, but like the weirdest, craziest, Cronenbergianist, Lynchianist version of some of that. Set to a techno soundtrack with some excellent neon lighting. Uh, yeah, I think I think that's the perfect summation. Um, I will just say for my final thoughts that I'm I'm very appreciative of you bringing this on the show. It's rare in this day and age, especially for like 
crazy film people like us uh, to like have a movie that is like truly new to you um, where you you couldn't even tell like what genre it is it is a part of or like what are what is a basic story beat so that was exciting in general and the movie was absolutely wonderful and again something that you know is hopefully why we're trying to do this month because yeah there were a lot of things that like I could relate to in this movie but I also understand there's a lot of things that I've I haven't had personal experience with and seeing it depicted in this way that like was so vivid and realistic like it made me feel for that moment like I like I you know was ex- was experiencing something that was not something that you know I could personally relate to but I understood the emotion and the feelings and everything else behind it and like that's one of the reasons I think all of us love cinema and also one of the reasons why we wanted to do this month like you know Peter and I pick a lot of the movies and we definitely pick hopefully like a wide swath of different genres and stuff like that. Some movies we've seen and some movies we haven't. But at the end of the day, like the movies that we pick are going to be different than some than than the movies uh, a queer person p- would pick for this for this show or feels that are worth discussing or a person of color or a, a woman or anything like that. So uh, you know, this was such a great kickoff to a month that we're very excited about. And thanks again so much for coming on, Liam. Uh, we, we do have saved saved for you, but we hope you come back before that as well. I mean, I'm. This was a great time. I can't wait to come back. I have like, I just in the break, I set aside space in my closet for as many vests as possible. <laughs> great, <laughs> good because we need to unload the shit out of us. Excellent. <laughs> yeah. Thank you again um, for having me. Anything that you'd like to promote? Uh, sure. Um, I write for this website called The Nocturnal. That's the K N O C K T U R N A L. Um, look up Liam. You'll find all of the things that I've written on there. Um, I think by the time this posts, um, I'll have an interview with Guillermo del Toro actually. Uh, Whoa! Awesome. Yeah, that's I, awesome. It's it's cool stuff. Um. Right now, I think the most recent thing I have on there is uh, interviewing the writers of Detective Pikachu. Um, there's enough cool stuff there, so feel free to check it out. Um, or just, like, message me on Twitter, Haber345, H-A-B-E-R, 345. Um, I like friends who like movies, so that's all of you probably that are listening. And we'll make sure we uh, we'll include a link in the show notes, too. So if you're curious to find the writing... Go in the show notes. You'll find it right there. I'm excited to check this out. I did not know uh, that you had an upcoming interview with Gilmore Del Toro. So that is awesome. I'm, I'm, Peter and I hmm? – fun fact, Peter almost didn't end up working out, but uh, he had his uh, exhibit, his monster exhibit here in Minneapolis, and Peter almost flew up to Minneapolis to stay with me to go see that monster exhibit. Yeah, it's uh, – yeah. they're doing the – he's like promoting – it's like a trailer drop for – um, scary stories to tell in the dark or whatever it's called. But it's like at some swanky hotel and it's like basically there's like six shifts where you have a lunch with Guillermo del Toro and I bowed in on one of them, thankfully, which is very cool. That is so awesome. Yeah. Well, looking forward to that. Uh, yeah, and thanks again for coming on. This was a true blast. But we do have three more movies we're doing this month that we're also very excited about. Uh, next week you'll get uh, Bound with returning guest Luana Saida. Uh, who previously joined us to talk about Ravenous, and that was a uh, a really, really good episode uh, that I think Peter and I uh, started uh, started that episode uh, 
really, really, really liking Ravenous and left uh, with some of Luana's thoughts, loving the movie and wanting to rewatch it immediately. So we're very excited to to cover Bound with her. Then we have Caitlin Casiello with Funeral Parade of Roses and Joey Lee with But I'm a Cheerleader. But uh, three-time returning guest, eligible for more vests. Um, so She is still vest eligible, yes. Yeah, still vest eligible. Caitlin too. Luana as well. We don't want to. We don't want to deny vests from everyone at least till we finally run out. Yeah, and the, uh, the only one of these movies uh, that I've seen is Bound. So uh, I'm I'm really excited. This this was a great way to kick off the month. I'm so excited uh, for the for the rest of this. So. Uh, yeah, Liam, again, thank you so much for joining us. If you've ever listened to the end of our episode, you know we're terrible at ending. Yeah, no, it's, it's fine. <laughs> I can't uh, wait to listen yes. to your next episodes, though. And thank you again for so much for having me. Awesome. All right. Well, everyone, uh, you have a good night. And uh, maybe, I don't know, buy a hamster and talk to it for some emotional growth. Yeah. Or maybe that hamster will be Isabella Rossellini. Uh, in, a, in, a, in a universe of infinite possibilities, Peter. Let all our hamsters be Isabella Rossellini. <laughs> yeah, may all your hamsters be Isabella Rossellini. Good night. Good night. See my vest. See my vest made from real gorilla chest. Feel this sweater. There's no better than authentic Irish setter. See this hat. It was my cat. My evening wear vampire bat. These white slippers are albino, African endangered rhino, grizzly bear underwear, turtle's necks, I've got my share, beret of poodle on my noodle, it shall rest. Try my red robin suit, it comes one breast or two, see my vest, see my vest, see my vest. Hey folks, thanks for listening to We Love to Watch. Thank you so much for listening to our show, and we've got just a few quick announcements for you. There ain't nothing in the rule book that says that we can't do some of our own plugs, baby. If you'd like to talk to us, uh, tell us we're stupid, tell us we're beautiful. The quickest way to get to us is our Facebook group, facebook.com slash we love to watch. Or our website, WLTWpodcast.com. Leave us a comment. Tell us we're doing a good job. Only tell us we're doing a good job. We're so sensitive. We're sensitive boys. We're soft boys. And uh, if you'd like to help other people, if you enjoy our show and want other people to be able to listen to this fine, fine program that we produce at no cost, we don't get any money for this. You guys have yet to pay us anything. We live and we breathe off of good reviews from iTunes. So if you would please go to iTunes, review our show, give us a positive rating. We would love to get more and more people involved in this show and this community. I know you hear it all the time, but it really does help. And we're also available if you don't use iTunes. We're also available on Google Music, Stitcher, Tune in. We're currently on SoundCloud. We'll take that out if SoundCloud goes away. <laughs> That's it. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned, guys, on our Facebook page especially. We're going to have a lot more polls, a lot more prizes, and a lot more uh, interaction with you guys. So keep it tuned in. Uh, let us know what you guys are thinking. And again, above all else, thanks for listening to We Love to Watch.